Wow, the time had come. The time for God to fulfill his promise. Israel was about to go into Canaan. The ultimate question, are we there yet, (laughs) is about to be definitively answered. Yes, we are there. Tomorrow night, you guys will roll out your bedrolls on the other side of Jordan and look up at stars from Canaan. What an exciting moment. All the words given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob repeated and enlarged by Moses. All the preparation in the wilderness, the goal and the supreme purpose of the deliverance from Egypt. All of this is right at the point of fulfillment as they're about to enter into the inheritance. So powerful was the memory of this event that all Micah has to do is say, literally, remember from Shittim to Gilgal, and the story downloads. It was lost on us, but it wasn't lost on them. They got it. That's because this event, in the account of it, actually seems to have become a regular ritual celebration in ancient Israel. Because, I mean, seriously, who doesn't love a parade? As you read the text carefully, especially in the original, all the signs are there that we're reading a liturgical text. It carries a historical memory, but it's recorded more as a liturgy, as an act of worship. And the destination of the crossing, Gilgal, became a very significant worship center in early Israel. It was Samuel's headquarters. It's where they crowned Saul as king. And even 500 years later, Micah and Hosea note that there are sacrifices and oaths taking place at Gilgal. And so this was a very significant event, a very significant liturgical celebration, and it makes sense. This is what it's all about. It would be like, what if Christians decided not to celebrate Easter? Because we all know what happened. And that's what happened here. Strangely, the ritual celebration of the crossing of the Jordan stopped. We don't know why. It seems even to have fallen into disfavor. Both Amos and Hosea condemn those who go down to Gilgal to make their offerings and swear their oaths. And this celebration is not taught about in the Torah It is not one of the regular annual festivals, which now look strangely truncated. They celebrate everything about the history of redemption except its culmination. This ritual commemoration of the crossing just died out. But the story did not. The story and its successive re-experience in Israel through the ritual didn't die out but was enshrined in the text that we read today. The forum critic Hermann Gunkel once said, text is where rituals go to die. But I think he was wrong. Texts are places where rituals that might be forgotten live on forever. This text is more than a historical record. It is suffused with the echoes and voices and layers of people who relived the event and for whom this event became a massive sign of God's faithfulness and a template 
for living into the promised inheritance that God has for his people. God's people would have many more passages and crossings required of them in the pursuit of Yahweh's purpose and the fulfillment of his promises. And every one of them somehow seems mirrored in this passage. So it's more than just a mere event that is reported in a text. It is a text that conveys the truth of that event for every subsequent generation most of whom never crossed the Jordan River, many of whom, most of whom, would never even see the Jordan River. Indeed, the end of the story says the message of this event is for all the people of the earth so that they can know that there's a real God in Israel. Even Naaman the leper got it in the end, right? Why would I go dip in the Jordan? Give it a shot, man. What have you got to lose, you know? So, uh, so even Naaman gets it. What could the story have meant to those multitudes who came later, who did not ford the Jordan? Later Israelites and those who followed them heard this text speaking to their experience probably through a kind of empathetic analogy. Here's the crossing in our experience. Here's the challenge in our lives. And this is dangerous stuff. Not just any crossing would be appropriate. This crossing stands as the culmination of redemptive history. And an analogy to our lives risks trivializing that event and making it too sentimental, too individualistic, maudlin, an expression of our narcissism. And so we have to grasp this text seriously. And yet, when Elisha is going to enter into his role as the successor to Elijah, very conspicuously the text has him cross the Jordan. And it doesn't go well at first, you remember. He, he whacks the Jordan with the cloak and like he gets a wet cloak for it. <laughs> this is not how it's supposed to happen, God, which is the translation of where's the God of Elijah. And then he whacks it again and the river opens for him. So crossing the Jordan for that individual is a walking into his calling. David, when he is returning to the land after the revolt of Absalom, and as he is stepping back into the purpose of God and the promise of God for his life, the text conspicuously notes his crossing of the Jordan. And so the crossing of the Jordan is this primal moment, and maybe even the exiles in Babylon, as they are returning to the land as they stop at the Jordan, maybe they paused and wondered if God's promise still was on the other side of that river. Promises so bright, could they still light the way for them? And maybe John the Baptist chose the Jordan River for his baptisms partly because of this event. The text invites the reader, risks and all, to re-envision their lives in this dramatic moment from Shittim to Gilgal. Even though there's every chance that we might trivialize it and turn something epical into something banal. So how do we appropriate this text, he said. I can't tell you. I can only lay out for you the bold print emphases of this passage, which do indeed create a kind of template for a great many other smaller passages that later readers, including us, have to undertake and really, it's easy. 
There are four things in this book, this story, that stand out. The river, obviously. The speeches. There's a lot of talking in this and not much walking. Because it's a short little walk, so there's a lot of talking that surrounds it. And then there's the ark, which is everywhere in this story. And then there's the rocks, hence the sermon title. And so we want to look at the river, the speeches, the ark, and the rocks. And there are a couple of other statements. This is a chapter that in the midst of some tedious detail has some glow-in-the-dark kinds of statements. Like, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God set out, and in one translation it reads, get up and go after it. I heard a camp meeting preacher once take that text. Get up and go after it. And for an hour, he preached on everything imaginable that you were supposed to get up and go after. And I was sitting there saying, that is not the correct interpretation of that passage. That is not a contextually oriented. But as I've studied this passage, I wish I could go back and talk to that old guy because I think he was probably right. I mean, he may have been wrong in some of his analogies. But the ark moving down in this moment, there's a get up and, and whatever you do, just go where that thing goes. You won't go wrong if you follow that. And so, so there it is, the, the get up and go after it. Then there's that interesting comment where Joshua says, you have not passed this way before. Well, hello, of course not. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So this can't just be a pedestrian, oh, by the way, you all need directions. I think when he says, you haven't passed this way before, he's saying, friends, we're in a new world. This is a new environment. And then he says, Consecrate yourselves. Tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And that last statement, that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is a missional passage. All the people of the earth. And so I think here we have a narrative template or a script for how we journey into God's promises, a journey of challenge, danger, uh, but a journey that has to be undertaken. So I want to take those four items for you uh, and talk about each one and, and what it might point to. And I hope as I do, I normally, for this one, I can't tell you here's the application in your life. I'm just going to have to let you meditate on the Word and sit with it yourself and decide maybe what the Lord is, is saying to you. And I just want to give you the material, the grist for your mill. So let's start with the river, which exemplifies the challenge of the passage. Do you know that the book of Joshua contains 35% of all the references to the Jordan River in the entire Old Testament? That's astounding to me. The book of Joshua? There are 180, 198 references to the Jordan, and Joshua has 70 of them. But our story here has 28 of them. 15% of the references to the Jordan River are in these two chapters. So you read these chapters, you're going to get wet. <laughs> and not as obvious, because it's translated many different ways, the verb that means to cross over appears 22 times in this story. And so this is not a story, well, this is a story of the fulfillment of the promise, but this is not a story that says fulfilling the promise is getting stuff. This is saying fulfillment of the promise is not getting something, but going somewhere. 
And I don't know about you, but right there for me, I hear a reproof from the Spirit. The fulfillment of God's promise is not about getting stuff. It's about going places and going where God's purpose leads. It's about passing through, passing over, moving out and moving on. And that means when God fulfilled His promise, it meant change. (gasps) Yes, change from wandering to settle, from pastoral to agricultural, from camp to villages and towns, from isolated to exposed, from close proximity to dispersal. And this change involved lots of threats and challenges to their faith. The the threat of fearful unbelief, complacency, pride, the threat of compromise with Canaanite religion, the loss of the urgency and intensity of their covenant devotion. And I think Dr. Arnold could probably open up the book of Deuteronomy and write that whole message for you, what the threats were in the land. Every momentous step in God's purpose comes in the form of a change a crossing, a passage. And every change in transition brings with it a challenge, a threat, a potential danger. And wow, what a crossing it was. Now today, the Jordan, well, let me just, uh, the Jordan sounds really threatening and dangerous in the um, Old Testament. So we hear He says, uh, Jeremiah says, if you've raced with the men on foot and they've wearied you, how will you compete with horses? If in a safe land you're so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? So it must be a scary place. And then he says, behold, like a lion coming up from the jungle of the Jordan. Lions? Yeah. But if you go to Israel today, and you will go to Israel today, (laughs) come by my office, pick up some literature, and I'll get you fixed up. The Jordan today is pathetic. You can wade across it and might not even go deeper than your knees because of all the water that's been pumped out by Jordan and Israel. And it also smells bad because of the raw sewage that's been dumped in it. But it hasn't always been that way. Just at the turn of the century, the uh, Jordan River looked more like this, and it is a very treacherous crossing. The, the valley itself ranges between 3 and 14 miles wide, and the floodplain ranges from 200 yards wide to a mile wide. And you can see already here, the shelf just above the river is filled with thick vegetation. It is literally a jungle of tangled underbrush. Uh, and that underbrush, especially in the wet season, is inhabited by lots of bad creatures that will hurt you. In the ancient world, this was lions, uh, jackals, all kinds of, uh, of wild animals. And so the river then drops about nine feet per mile. And so it's really a formidable thing to cross. And in flood tide, it looks a bit like this. Um, this is a one spot in the Jordan River just north of where they crossed. Um, here's a, these all come from the American Colony uh, photograph collection. It's quite amazing. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, when maybe, are you sure, Joshua? Is this the right idea? You know, and the text notes, this was harvest and the Jordan River had overflowed all of its banks. So even later when the water stops, they've still got a tangled mess to hack their way through and get down to the riverbank and then get back up 
that steep escarpment that you saw there. What's going on here? It looks like God chose the worst possible time to cross the Jordan. The hardest time of year to bring them into the land. Which kind of fits, if you've read the Bible a lot. (laughs) Moving on with God and His purpose in our life requires a passage and it poses challenges. If we're going to experience the fullness of life God plans for us, we're going to have to deal with with some unruly river crossings. And so, and I'm not just talking about tragedies and heartbreaks, but even just the transitions that we go through in life. Some are great blessings and they bring joy. Others are painful and difficult. We stand, sometimes we feel, at the bank of a swirling, stormy river that angrily blocks our path. Dark torrents concealing tangled passageways looking over at where we wish we could be. The way across can be treacherous and tangled, and it's hard to believe that God wants us to go somewhere that requires such a dangerous passage. And it will seem that God has chosen the worst possible time in our lives for these changes to come. And so we can easily forget that He's fulfilling His promise. But these things are part of the path to the fulfillment of God's promise in our lives, and we can't receive what God has promised without braving the waters of the Jordan at flood tide, without walking through the swirling changes of our lives. So let's move now from the river to the speeches. And the speeches basically serve to help them face the fact of what they've got to do. You have not passed this way before. And Joshua focuses their attention on the river. And I don't know if you spotted it, but he says they moved out from Shittim and they went to the bank of the river. This is like three miles. It's not a long walk. Um, But why are they camping right at the river? They spend three days staring at the river. Like, you reckon we'll cross today? I don't know. Joshua's just got his parker. You think he knows? Maybe he thinks the water will do something. I don't know. They're just staring at the river. Joshua made them park by the Jordan for three days, and I think it was important because the full weight of what they had to do probably gradually settled into everyone's minds. So often we don't really lock in and look at the challenges we have to deal with. We just want to plunge ahead, but we need to find places of attention and reflection and thought about the things that are happening in our lives. And in a swirl of events, We need to really focus on what's going on. And this forces a kind of uh, recognition of the challenge. You have not passed this way before. Even without the water, the river is still going to be a tough crossing. The tangled floodplain of Jordan wasn't like the Red Sea. I mean, it was a shorter walk, I'll admit, but it was a much more hazardous one. And so they had to uh, move into this new dangerous situation. And you know what's really dangerous? Is moving into a new situation and operating like you're still in the old one. Now some things are eternal and unchanging, but a lot of processes and procedures and patterns have to change. First year I was here as a faculty member, before many of you were born, back in the late Bronze Age transition. 
My daughter, my second child, was born on my first day of class. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and we had, had a new job, a new house, um, or not a new house, but we had bought a house, first house we'd ever bought, uh, and it was a little bit out of control. Um, and then I've got uh, two children, and I'll, I remember a morning when I was desperately trying to, to get to work, not because I was dedicated to my calling, because I had to get out of the house now. Um, young dads just aren't made of tough stuff, I'm just telling you this. And so, uh, so Angie's standing there in her robe, and, uh, and one child is grabbing her leg, wiping his nose, you know, on her leg, and she's holding my daughter, newborn daughter, in her, and daughter is crying, and, and she would cry and cry and cry until she threw up. And I wanted to be gone when that happened. And at one point, I just said, you know, I'll be glad when everything gets back to normal. Stupid thing to say. <laughs> and Angie looks at me, and she's sitting right there. And in a voice like the demon-possessed kid in the Exodus, Exodus, uh, Exorcist, she said, this is normal now. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, man, I better get out of here. <laughs> so I scuttled on down the road to get to the office. You just can't live by the old rules in a new situation. You get married, you can't live like a single person anymore. New rules. You have children. You can't live like you were living before. There's lots of things that change. I don't know if they're analogous to crossing the Jordan or not, but maybe for you they will be. And, and Joshua says to them, to really deal with this, you're going to have to consecrate yourselves, sanctify yourselves. You're going to have to intentionally orient your relationship with God and, and buckle up because some serious, serious stuff is coming. Don't take your spiritual commitment for granted. Stop. Do some stuff that you know will intensify your relationship with God and get ready for what's coming. So those are the speeches. Let's look at the ark now. And that, the image of the ark dominates this story. And you know, again, what's just kind of interesting, about 10% of all the references to the ark in the entire Old Testament are in these two chapters. It's really quite astounding. Um, the the uh, the, Joshua has 30 references to the ark. The Pentateuch only has 41, and that's where they build the thing. So it's a, quite an impressive emphasis on the ark here. And the ark embodies two really obvious things. One is the presence of God, and the other is what's in the ark, the tablets. What's in the ark is God's word. So the ark is about the presence of God and the word and will of God. And so the prominence of the ark is all about lock in on the presence of God and lock in on the will of God. Calibrate your compass. Get your navigational gear programmed and locked in on this thing. And it's easy to forget because Joshua goes without a lot of advantages Moses had. One thing Joshua hasn't got anymore, evidently, is the pillar of fire and smoke. That would have been helpful during this particular time. But no, we don't have that. We've got the ark, but you go, who turned the gas off, you know? 
This thing isn't doing what it used to do. We don't get the smoke. If a lot of smoke and fire had been like jacking right up out of the ark, I think Joshua would have had an easier time of it. The rabbis actually feel sorry for Joshua. They say Josh, Moses is the sun, Joshua is the moon, and they say, oh, for shame, oh, for shame. Poor guy, you know, second fiddle to Moses. And he doesn't even get a decent column of flame. Uh, there's no theophany anywhere in the book of Joshua. There's no supernatural manifestation of the actual presence of God in the book of Joshua. Just this box. Here's the other thing. They don't even get to see the miracle. The text says that the water stopped, and it gives you some place names. But if you know your Bible geography, and I look around at my Israel student friends, and they're going, yes, yes, tell them about the geography. <laughs> the water piles up at a place called Adam, which as the crow flies is 15 miles north of where they crossed, and so they didn't see the miracle. And so Joshua says, go down there and step in the water with the ark. Now think about it. What happens to people who mess up the ark? <laughs> it's Uzzah town, right? Graveyard dead. If you just mess. What if the priests go down into the river, slip, and drop the thing into the river, and it's floating down towards the Dead Sea? This is not a good situation, and they don't know what's going down. Joshua says, oh, the water will stop. Okay, we got no theophany, no smoke, no fire, and you tell us this river, this flooded river, is just going to stop for us. Uh-huh. Did the Lord tell you that? Here's the scary thing. God didn't tell him that. In his instructions, that is not in God's word to Joshua. That's Joshua's word to the people. I don't know if he's making this up or what, but the water will just stop. Sure, trust me on this. And so they go down into the water, and what they don't know is the water has already stopped 15 miles upstream. And that 15 miles is traversed like this, so it takes a long time for the water to kind of... And they all think, well, that's kind of interesting. So they walk out into the river. And this, uh, this place now is called the Demia Crossing. I almost got arrested in Israel once because I wanted to see it. So I drove up there, and I saw this night, Demia Crossing. So I turned right, heading towards the Jordan River. There's a little chain-link fence. No big deal. thought, I can park and hop over the fence. And as I'm parking my car and walking over to the fence, a guy with a gun comes over, an Israeli Defense Force guy, and he says, what are you doing? And I said, I was going to jump this fence. Maybe you don't want to go to Israel with me. Because <laughs> what do you do if you have to get your prof out of jail, right? I mean, what can I say? But, and he said, you can't cross. And I said, well, th down there is where the water stopped in the book of Joshua. And the guy's looking at me like, oh, you're one of those. You know? And he said, this is the demilitarized zone, and if you cross that, I'll have to shoot you. Okay, well, I think I'll just... You know, um, I'm a Christian, I believe the Spirit's everywhere, so I'll just commune right here, and then I'll just leave if that's okay with you. So I just got in the car and trundled off, and, and uh, you know, my heart's beating like this. So, yeah, I'm not Indiana Jones people, I'm Marcus Brody, all right? Just so you know. Um, so, at any rate, the ark embodies the presence of God, and so... And you notice, it's obvious here that there's three things. The ark is going ahead of them. The ark sits in the river with them while they cross. And the ark is the last one out and shuts the door when they leave. 
And think about God in that light. God goes before you. And, and God's, Joshua says, leave 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. And every commentator says, it's because the ark is so dangerous. You touch that thing, you could die. But the text tells us, leave the space because you've not been this way before. The space is not about danger. The space is because God wants them to see him. They want, he wants them to see him down in the river. And it may also be quite practical that since they don't know the way through Jordan's flood, that maybe by following the ark, this is one way that they can make their way through there safely. But I suspect it all comes down to the fact that in this moment, God wants them. 2,000 cubits is half a mile. So this is really a big space. God goes before us. The Israelites learned this when they visited Rahab, right? You sneak into town, you're a spy, slip into the most, one of the most private places in the entire town and discover that you've got somebody here who can already recite the Nicene Creed. God's already at work in Canaan, boys. And here, God is already at work, going ahead of them. And then the ark stays in the river. Each Israelite passed by the ark the unchanging presence and will of God, always with you. I love that last song we sang. There's another one in the fire. There's another one in the water. And there he is in the ark. And so just like God, at the point where things are the hardest, he's the first in and the last out. And then the ark closes the river. And I love that passage where it just says, the river returned just like it was before. There's no sign that the miracle happened. There's no um, pillar of salt. There's, there's, it's like, I can imagine maybe one Israelite looking at this and saying, did that really just happen? And one of them says, well, we're on this side of the river. How do you think we got here? But the, there's no external sign. This story is amazing in its deprivation of external signs. The story also says they hurried out of the river. Because, see, they were smart. They already knew that the river had stopped upstream and that there was a lag. And if the water was going to flow again, who knows? Maybe it's already flowing. So they weren't going to waste any time in that river. But what we get here is that God closes the door behind them now. And at this point, to return, to turn back will be unbelief and defiance. To enter into God's promises, there has to be a closing of the door. There has to be a shutting off of the route of return. And we have not come to grips with the implications and limits and responsibilities and challenges of living in God's promises as long as we've still got a back door out. And we need to know when a boundary has been crossed and we cannot go back. So what about the rocks? This story, I get confused with this story because they, they have to, haul, they're hauling a lot of rocks around. I don't know if you noticed. They take 12 rocks up to Gilgal and set them up there. And then it looks like they take 12 more rocks and take them down into the river and stack them up in the river. And then, so when the river goes down, do the rocks kind of like poke up and you go, oh, look, there's rocks in the river. I mean, that may be. The purpose of all this weird stuff, though, is so that 
later generations will say, what's with that? You know, what do these stones mean? Um, Why is that there? Especially if they're just like appearing in the river. And this is so that they will remember. Now in the Old Testament, remembering is not about keepsakes or historical markers. Remember is code for be faithful. It means a vital tie, a continued significance, like the sacraments, like the Eucharist. Remembering Jesus is not mere cognition, and it's not magical time travel so that we go back to the past. It is an experience in which the power of Jesus in the past, at the Last Supper, at the crucifixion and resurrection, is alive in the present today. We recollect, regather, renew, re-experience the power and presence of Jesus. Interestingly, the, while modern Christian writers have taken crossing the Jordan to be about death, the early Christian writers did not. They took it to be about the fullness of the Spirit. You look in the New Testament, the language of inheritance and promised land, all that stuff in the New Testament All that rhetoric from the Old Testament in the New Testament is applied to the Spirit's presence in the church. And and Origen, bless his heart, (laughs) takes baptism as a type, or takes the crossing of the Red Sea as the type for baptism, and the crossing of the Jordan as the entry into the fullness of the Spirit and God's promise. Because he points out, it can't be heaven, because when we go to heaven, the battle's over. But when these boys crossed the Jordan, the battle was just starting. And when you step across the Jordan into God's purposes, get ready for a battle. And they have to fight that battle with weapons not made with human hands. The presence and the word and the will of God. And so the rocks represent the recollection, the contact point with the power of God in the past. When I first came to seminary and decided I wanted to be a Hebrew scholar when I grew up, my wife bought me the big cloth-bound BHS. You all have seen it. Not the little one, the big one. And it was really expensive at that time. And I studied that Bible all the way through seminary, studied it, used it in graduate school, cried on the pages of the Psalter in the Yale Library and created a bit of a stir. Um, And gradually this Bible just got ratty, really, really ratty. And I did a blog once about my old beat-up Bible. And a former student um, saw this and was bothered by the fact that I might have to dispose or retire that Bible. And so he got all the people that subscribed to my blog. I don't know how that happened. And he hit them up for money and paid to have that Hebrew Bible rebound in leather. Man, this is way better than what we bought originally. And so... And that student is here today. So, Matt, would you just wave? Yeah. When I got this in the mail, I just lost it. Because this Bible encapsulates everything it means to me to be a scholar and a believer, to have a decent brain and hopefully a holy heart. And, um, and I just, um, it's, it's precious to me. This really is like a memorial stone for me, and I hope I'm not trivializing the story. I don't think I am. I can't tell you how to extend the lines of our story into your own life. 
I tried and tried to pray that through and I can't tell you. I don't know what your river crossing is. I don't know how you'll discover God going before you, standing beside you, closing the door behind you. I don't know what your memorial stones will be. But the Holy Spirit does.